This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Eric Hahn, Associate Professor in the Department of History at the College of William and Mary. Dr. Hahn is the author of Rise of a Japanese Chinatown, Yokohama, 1894-1972, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2014. Dr. Han, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. You've written about Yokohama and, and unequal treaties, and the issue of unequal treaties and treaty revision and extraterritoriality is so central to our understanding of the Meiji period and the Meiji Restoration. Can you unpack that for us a bit and then complicate it as well? Sure, sure. Now, to, to be clear, the unequal treaties were signed by the regime that existed prior to the Meiji Restoration, the Tokugawa shogun's regime. And it was something that was inherited by the the Meiji regime, and it was something that very early on Meiji leaders sought to revise. And they quickly realized that the Western powers with whom they'd signed these treaties were were not willing to offer equal rights or, or at least political equality with Japan without certain reforms and what they considered to be um, progressive modernizations to take place within Japan itself. And in particular, that would uh, include a new legal system. Extraterritoriality was one of the provisions of these unequal treaties, essentially meant that the nationals of these treaty signatory countries would not be placed under Japanese legal jurisdiction so long as, of course, they stayed within or in the surrounding areas of the of the treaty ports. And so the, one of the primary concerns of the Meiji regime was to earn the trust and the goodwill of the, of the, of the Western powers and to revise their own legal system in order to do so. And ultimately, if they were able to do that, the Western powers would thereby be willing to place their own nationals under Japanese jurisdiction. Um, and this was a very important, of course, step towards the political and legal modernization of Japan. And it was something that took many, many decades to actually accomplish. But during that time, of course, the unequal treaties had set up trading posts in a number of Japanese cities, these so-called treaty port settlements that were therefore outside the legal jurisdiction of the Japanese state. And during these these long decades of the treaty port system, a very interesting hybrid culture emerged in these sites because of the, the inflow of goods and people and the interactions that actually took place there. But also because these were symbols of Japan's unequal status in the international realm, there also uh, were sites of controversy. Today, I think people in Yokohama and many other of these former, uh, many other cities where these former treaty port settlements existed, do look back nostalgically. They do see these as cosmopolitan sites. They do see these as vectors of modern life and modern culture into Japan. And so they do sort of commemorate um, the site of, say, the first beer brewery, the location where uh, gaslighting was introduced to Japan, and so forth. So some of these developments are actually remembered in a nostalgic and, and in a very positive way. And yet, if you do rewind and, and you do look at the debates that were taking place among Japanese political leaders and also in the newspapers at the time, treaty ports were seen as a blight on Japanese sovereignty. And they also were seen very clearly as a symbol of Japan's obsequiousness, Japan's weakness, uh, and also um, a recognition of Japan's inferiority towards the Western powers. And so these were controversial sites. One of the primary foreign policy missions of the, Meiji, of the new Meiji regime, of course, was to repeal these treaty port settlements, even though, you know, as today, they're remembered as the place where Japanese people first tasted ice cream, for instance. 
You've written especially about the treaty port of Yokohama, but could you also describe where were these other treaty ports located and what was kind of the politics of their selection? Well, initially, the Japanese uh, leaders were attempting to, and we're talking about diplomatic representatives of the, the Tokugawa regime, they were trying to push the, uh, the Western powers to as peripheral a location as possible. So initially, Nagasaki was, was offered up as a, an open port for trade with the Western powers. Now, Nagasaki had, since the, the start of the 17th century, been a location for where uh, foreign traders had arrived, initially the Portuguese and later on the Dutch. And so for about two and a half centuries, the Dutch were the only European traders who could enter Japanese soil, and that would be at Nagasaki. So naturally, the Tokugawa regime, being confronted by American negotiators, were first most willing to allow Americans and other foreign powers to use Nagasaki as a trading port. Naturally, this wasn't acceptable to the Americans and the British and, and other powers because of its remote location. There weren't any major population centers down at the southwestern tip of Kyushu. They were demanding representation, um, diplomatic representation, and also trading um, rights much closer to population centers of Japan, which, be, which would mean, of course, near Tokyo and near Osaka in eastern and western Japan. There was some diplomatic wrangling over the location of Yokohama. The um, American diplomatic representatives initially wanted the town of Kanagawa, and that would actually be on a major highway, the, the Tokaido Highway. This was seen as actually problematic because of uh, potential disputes with other regional lords in Japan who would be traveling up and down the Tokaido. And uh, ultimately, the Bakufu was able to push the end to... I guess you would say, unilaterally designate the small fishing village of Yokohama, which would be several miles away from the Tokaido itself, and designate that as the, uh, as the location for the new treaty ports. The other treaty ports were not as successful. There was a planned treaty port in the city of Niigata. However, that city, um, that port actually was not suitable to be developed as a, as sort of a large a port for, for large ships. Hakodate was opened uh, primarily as a refueling site for whalers and also for traders coming in from Russia. Kobe was opened um, about 10 years later. This was also um, defined by treaty and it, its opening was delayed because of its proximity to the imperial capital of Kyoto, but eventually it was opened as well. Ultimately, it was only Kobe and, and Yokohama that became really successful as centers for foreign trade. Yokohama, of course, through the end of the Meiji period, was the, the predominant port for foreign trade, where I think about greater than half of Japan's exports were leaving the country. You mentioned that Yokohama is one of the biggest trading ports and one of the most successful trading ports. I'm really curious what life would have been like in Yokohama. You, you recently published this article in the Journal of Japanese Studies called Tragedy in Chinatown, where you kind of paint this picture of Yokohama as almost like a, a Wild West type of town. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it certainly had that feeling because this was a region in which various legal jurisdictions were overlapping. And naturally, the Japanese police were involved. But nationals of the treaty port countries, of course, were, would not be prosecuted, would not be held accountable to Japanese justice. There was some dispute, of course, about whether or not Japanese laws themselves would be applicable to foreigners in Yokohama. But it was very clear that if a foreigner were to break a law, they would be held accountable by their own consulates. A court would be convened within their own consulate, and they would be judged and, and sentenced thereby. And so there was, this was a very complicated situation 
on the ground. And it also was a center, of course, for large numbers of sailing vessels early in the, in, in the Meiji era. And of course, a, a large and transient population of sailors many of whom would be on trading vessels, but many of whom would also be involved with the, the sealing and whaling enterprises. Of course, you know, there were a whole host of saloons and, and bars and other sort of venues for, uh, for their entertainment that sprouted up in the town. What was particularly interesting is that the layout of the town also became subdivided between different groups. The waterfront the most expensive property was the location for many very, I'd say, like upper scale restaurants, restaurants and, and, uh, and hotels. And some of these hotels would boast about uh, the availability of fine French wines and so forth. But further back into the, uh, the treaty ports, you would find stables, you would find slaughtering houses, you would find warehouses. And it's in these sort of low rent areas that you'd find these saloons and grog shops and so forth that would cater to visiting sailors. And these were locations where a great deal of crime perhaps uh, was, was taking place. And given the very complex and sort of confused legal situation, it was actually very difficult for the Japanese police to control the situation. It was very easy, of course, for, uh, for sailors to simply leave the port in case of a brawl, in case of a robbery, in case of any sort of, uh, well, any crimes of that sort. And you relay the story of one of these very gruesome crimes in this article. And, and it's really complicated by the fact that this happens on the very day that extraterritoriality ends in Japan. Can you tell us more about this story? True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, uh, I certainly can. Uh, this is a fascinating story. And I think that it is an important test case for the relationship between Japan and the West, in particular America. But it's also a very interesting legal case. So in the summer of 1899, Japan's new treaties, equal treaties that abolish, of course, the boundaries of the, the treaty port settlements, which will allow sort of Westerners uh, to live and conduct business all around Japan, took place. But at the same time, nationals of the treaty signatory countries would be placed under Japanese jurisdiction. Now, there's a whole host of articles and, and debates among foreign residents leading up until this moment. Naturally, missionaries were looking forward to the ending of the treaty port because they would then be freed from any restrictions to travel proselytize uh, and build churches in Japan's so-called interior. Many other merchants were a little bit you know, less enthusiastic, probably because they felt that they were doing business just fine within those uh, the treaty port settlements, and they were afraid of being placed under Japanese justice, I should say, uh, and also potentially being taxed to a greater extent than they had been up until that point, because then they would be under um, the same rules as Japanese merchants. So there was a whole a, a long-standing debate about um, and uh, about the impending change to the treaty port system, the abolition of the treaty ports among Western residents. There was also a lot of fear mongering that the Japanese would simply start rounding up foreigners that they didn't like. Now, one of the things that was, that was also going to take place with ending the treaty ports was that foreign businesses would have to register with, with the Japanese authorities. Now, up until this point, many Japanese had actually been registering their businesses in the name of resident foreigners or foreigners who are actually absent. And this was one way for them to avoid a whole host of government oversight in Japan, principally taxes, but also police investigations. And so many of these grog shops and saloons that were serving visiting sailors, visiting soldiers, 
actually were registered in the names of foreign residents, even if, in fact, they were being operated by Japanese proprietors or proprietresses. And in fact, many of these saloons offered services beyond simply alcoholic uh, beverages and, and food. Many of the women working at these saloons were offering uh, sexual services as well. Now, in one of these cases, one of these saloons, there was a, an American man who was, I think, in his late 40s. He had deserted from a ship. He was living sort of a day-to-day existence, and he developed a relationship to the proprietress. Now, she had promised him, in fact, that after the repeal of the treaty ports, she would name him as the owner and the proprietor of her saloon. Now, he didn't have any particular skills. He did not have any set job. This would have, you know, he would have been, you know, able to partake of some of her profits in in this regard. And moreover, as came out later on in in the trial and in his testimony, he was apparently deeply in love with her and believed that he had a future with her. Meanwhile, another much younger man, a man named Nelson Ward, a, a young grifter from Northern Virginia, I believe Arlington, in fact, arrived in Japan and began writing forged checks forged checks drawing from the funds of his father, who was supposedly a judge. And he had drifted from place to place, failing to pay his debts, of course. And he also fell in with one of the women working at this same saloon. It's possible as well that Nelson Ward himself may have had a relationship with the proprietress. So on the night before the repeal of the treaty ports, that is, on the night before all of these uh, enterprises, all of these businesses come under Japanese jurisdiction, Robert Miller, this man in his 40s, finds out that the proprietress has not, in fact, registered her in in his name. He had, in fact, also bought a ring prior to this, hoping to at least show his commitment and his dedication and perhaps also marry the proprietress. Robert Miller confronts the proprietress and he learns that she has not, in fact, registered her in in his name. This threw him into a rage. Later that night, Nelson Ward, this young man, has been traveling around the various saloons. He had sought to actually spend the night with one woman, um, and she rebuffed him. He came back to that saloon, and he decided to spend the night there. Little did he know of what was about to befall him. Robert Miller came into the saloon that night, drank heavily. After Nelson Ward fell asleep, he proceeded to kill everybody in that saloon. So he first killed Nelson Ward, who was on the first floor. Then he went upstairs, killed another serving girl, and then he killed the proprietress herself, savagely battering her with a claw hammer. And then early in the morning, potentially about five o'clock in the morning, on the very day when legal sovereignty was returned to Japan, Robert Miller emerges out into the street, covered in blood, walks to the pier and searching for a a ship leaving um, Yokohama. Not finding a ship, he walks back to uh, the the street where the saloons are, enters another saloon and orders a drink. Several hours later, that saloon is surrounded by Japanese police and Robert Miller is finally taken into custody. And he becomes the first American to be charged with a capital crime under the Japanese legal system. Um, and he becomes, of course, an, an important test case. The media coverage is intense. There is actually a lot of speculation that the Japanese emperor will pardon him as a sign of benevolence and to commemorate the, the dawning of a new age of political equality between Japan and the Western powers. None of this takes place. Within six months, Robert Miller is sentenced and then hung in Tokyo. And he becomes the, the first American to be 
not only arrested for a capital crime, but also executed in Japan. And this is how the treaty port system ends in Japan and how the era of what people call mixed residence and political equality with the Western powers begins. It's certainly not, this kind of gruesome history is certainly not the kind of memory we have of these treaty ports, which, as you were saying, are always kind of presented as these spaces of Westernization and modernization in the early Meiji period. And, you know, the gaslights or the kind of red brick buildings that you can see when you go down to Yokohama now. And perhaps another thing that often gets forgotten, as you said, it's not only Westerners who are in these foreign settlements. And, and you've written specifically about the roots of the Chinatown in Yokohama. Could you tell us some more about that as well? Sure, sure. This is uh, naturally, this is a, an important part of the history of that moment. And it's a feature of that history that is not often recognized today. The fact that there were lower class, working class Westerners living in Yokohama at the time, that again is, is not like part of the, the popular nostalgic memory. Likewise, the fact that more than half the foreigner population of the treaty ports was Chinese is also not fully recognized. And I think that when people do think about the Meiji era and the history of foreign interaction, the dominant impression is, uh, is that Japan has opened up to the Western powers and has, has now begun a very energetic incorporation of Western norms and also, naturally enough, a much more energetic interaction with the Western powers, with the people from, from the Western powers. Nevertheless, more than half the foreigner population in the treaty ports is Chinese. So Miller's crime also, strangely enough, interestingly enough, dovetails with this fact. Initial newspaper reports described his crime as happening not just in Yokohama's treaty port as a whole, but specifically in Chinatown. And so much like we have uh, in the United States in the 19th and 20, early 20th centuries, you have a very strong sense of danger and exoticism that adhered to these zones of Chinese settlement. Um, you had that developing as well. Culturally speaking, the areas where the Chinese were settled had, in the popular imagination, had become inscrutable, dangerous, unhygienic sites. And so I think newspaper writers very easily jumped to the conclusion that this heinous murder that took place in the treaty port was somehow associated with Chinatown. Now, these low saloons, uh, they were actually on the fringes of a Chinese settlement. So in that sense, they were, spatially speaking, they could be considered part of Chinatown, but there weren't any actual Chinese who were involved or implicated at all in, uh, in, in the crime itself. Now, going back a little bit to talk about the history of Chinese settlements. The reason why the Chinese first arrived in, in Yokohama's treaty port is because they were attached to Western trading firms. Western trading firms had already been well established in numerous Chinese cities, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and so forth. And when those trading uh, firms expanded their operations to Japan, they brought many of their workers. So many of the accountants and many of the other sort of warehouse workers, as well as servants as, as well household servants, cooks, people clean, who would clean the house. These were uh, people who were employed by the Western firms. And then as they expanded to Japan, they were brought as well. Now, soon afterwards, Chinese trading firms as well established their own outposts in, in Japan. And gradually, a Chinese community developed as well. It's actually a very complicated story because the Western trading firms were always disappointed about the, the profits of their trade. So these were never as, as, uh, as important uh, you know, or, or as large as their operations in China. But the Chinese entered into these treaty ports and their investments were also significant. Investments in tea production, investments in sugar importing companies, and also silk and textile exports. 
So they were actually a very important part of the development of the treaty port economy. On the other hand, as well, a lot of other Chinese came with these firms, Western and Chinese, and they very quickly set up businesses serving the treaty port population themselves. So we had money changers, we had various stores, sundries, foods, as well as restaurants emerge in the treaty port settlement. And many of them, of course, were concentrated in a, in a certain zone that later became Chinatown. And today, if you go to Yokohama, there is this very vibrant Chinatown in Yokohama that gets a lot of tourists, for example. And, and I understand that that's kind of how you got into this project in the first place. Yes, it's, it's a very interesting Chinatown. The way I got into the research that I'm doing now is actually a little bit circuitous. When I was an undergraduate, I studied molecular biology. Now, that means that I was, I was a molecular biology major, I should say. That doesn't mean that that was the only thing that I was studying. I had also a great interest in Asia. I was starting to take Japanese language. I was, start, I was taking courses on Japanese literature and Japanese history. But I wasn't fully committed to doing history or, or even studying Japan as a career. And it actually took a trip to Japan to, to sort of, to allow me to make that leap. And one of the pivotal moments and one of the transformative moments was a visit to Yokohama. And in Yokohama, I encountered for the first time uh, Yokohama's Chinatown. And Yokohama's Chinatown um, was unlike any Chinatown I'd seen at the time. Um, it was gaudy. It was clean. It was covered in neon. It was also expensive. It was upscale. Um, it was difficult to get an entree in many of those restaurants for under, at the time, 20 US dollars. And since I was a, a fresh graduate uh, from college, I didn't have that type of money. So it was a very strange experience to see a Chinatown that was so thoroughly tourist-driven, but also targeted to a very different clientele, um, an upper-class clientele. And then, of course, it made me wonder like, what type of lives these Chinese had, whether or not this was a, a real Chinese community, or if I had wandered into a theme park of Chinese culture um, as imagined by Japanese consumers. Um, and that, I think that was like the, the seed of the research question that, that later drove me, which is to try to understand how a Chinese community can develop in Japan. And I think I've always thought about that in relation to my own sense of identity as a Chinese American. That's always been one of the prevailing questions was, was how does one understand one's ethnic background and what is the meaning of a national identity? Uh, because I was also highly cognizant of the fact that Japan and China have had such a conflictual relationship from the 19th century through the 20th century, uh, even till today, even through today. And it's, it's a, a rivalry and animosity that seems to be transmitted from generation to generation. The distrust continues. And so therefore, it seems to be, in some ways, blood-based. And so the, the question of how does a community of Chinese who are not, uh, you know, disguising their Chineseness, in fact, they're marketing it quite, quite openly, um, how does that community exist, endure, and relate to the Japanese host society? And that's sort of how my, my research developed. It was from that initial encounter uh, and some questions about my own identity. And ultimately, I think that my research on this relatively limited site within Japan does have broader implications for our understanding of national identity, ethnic identity, and also Japanese identity in, in particular. Because I think that, um, and I think that the local focus is, is, is quite important, because I think when we talk about national identity, uh, we do think in very, in very abstract terms. 
we are talking about an imagined community. We're thinking about ideologies. And I think that when we are thinking in those abstract terms, it becomes quite easy to imagine the inevitability of conflict. And yet we have other identities. We have other ways of identifying with collective groups. And what I was sort of trying to understand was how this small community of self-identified Chinese are able to build connections, build identifications in common with their Japanese neighbors. And this is no, by no means simply a utopian sort of exercise in, in reflecting on peace and harmony. I was also very interested in, in looking at ha what happened to this community during times of warfare between the two countries. You know, a, a, an instance when national identity trumps all other identities. And I, I want to see what happens to a community that is otherwise highly integrated culturally, socially, a community that is intermarried heavily with its, its host society, a, a community that has such deep commercial ties with the wider society. What happens when national identity draws a very firm line under conditions of warfare? And I think that that's sort of where this research eventually ended up. And it's something that uh, I think is, uh, makes what initially was a very personal and very localized project something that has much broader significance to understanding Japan and the modern world. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening. <laughs>